Well, good evening. It's always good to be with you guys. I always find it a very rewarding, worthwhile experience. And who doesn't want a worthwhile experience? Who wants to have a waste of their time? I'll tell you, one of the most frustrating scenarios that I have in the ER that I, that I do quite frequently is you go in and you see a patient, they tell you your, the history, you, you take the history, you do the physical exam, you think about what they're doing, put all the different differential diagnoses down in your brain, you order the tests, you interpret the tests, you order the radiology studies, you interpret the radiology studies, you go back to them, things aren't making sense, you talk to them, you wanna do more stuff, and they go, Actually, I was uh, just here for a work note. <laughs> Few things are more aggravating than taking the time to care for, spend the, uh, spend the brain power thinking about someone who essentially made up these symptoms that didn't make sense just so they could get out of work or just so they could get out of school. I think what is even more aggravating and actually devastating though to a person is finding out that not only did they waste time, but they wasted their life. It would be terrible if we reached the end of our life and found out that everything that we had been doing was worthless. Nobody wants to get to the end of their life and see that they had strived for and worked towards a, a worthless venture. One of the continued burdens of a pastor to our church is that we do things that are worthwhile. And one of those things that are worthwhile is that we do things that are in love. Indeed, the warning of Revelation 2 against the church of Ephesus is you had all these great programs, you had all this great orthodoxy, you defended the scriptures well, but you didn't have love. And so you've become ineffective and worthless, and Christ was going to remove their lampstand if they continued. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says you can do all these great things, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels. You can have faith that removes mountains. You can give your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. No pastor wants a worthless church. I can tell you the elders of this church, of Riverbend, shudder at the thought of us having all of these programs, having a DTP or a soul care or a seminary or these seminars or teaching in, uh, week in and week out just to have a worthless venture. Indeed, tonight I'm here to continue to show you how to lead a life that is not worthless, a life that is worth living, a life that at the end of you can be proud of. You see, I first taught on the greatest command, and this is probably about a year or so ago. I know you all remember it quite well. This first and great commandment that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 22 is described in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And yet, as I studied Matthew 22, I became more intrigued as to why Jesus answered a singular question as, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he gave two commandments. He gave it with almost a plural type of statement, and the second is like it. And so tonight, I want to continue that study and Matthew 22, 34 through 40, if you could turn there. Matthew 22, 34 through 40 says this. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. He said, teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. It's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, I just pray that tonight is not a worthless venture by me. May it be something that is fruitful, and for that I need you. I need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit upon me. Give me the words to say. I need your Holy Spirit upon them. Help them to hear. Help them to take it to heart. 
the things that are being said. Take anything untrue out of my mouth, Lord. May we honor you tonight. In your son's name, amen. So kind of a review of the background of what we're talking about in Matthew. Jesus is winding down to a close. He's going to turn his attention more towards the cross. And he has this kind of final showdown with the Jewish leaders. Jesus asked a series of questions. Jesus answers these questions and cements both the Jewish leaders' inability to stump Jesus, but also their hatred for him. After Jesus answered these questions, he will pronounce woe to them and then be done with them until his arrest. Now, the question in context that is proposed to Jesus is a question as to the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus answers uh, first with the question by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. The greatest commandment then becomes that we are to love God with all of everything that we have. The all here in review indicates both the scope and the intensity with which we love God. See, not only are we to love God with every facet of our life, but we are to love God with the maximum degree of every facet of our life. Everything that we're capable in every area of our life, we are to love God. So not only should every molecule in our body love God, but all of every molecule in our body should love God. And after Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 as the greatest commandment, he then gives the second commandment by quoting from Leviticus 19.18. You can turn there if you want. Leviticus 19.18, it's, a, it's, just, it's a, a verse that is found in a, in a lot of different commands. And this one is just kind of talking about how you're going to treat your neighbor. It's a simple enough command, and it says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, as a quick piece of sovereign irony, you should note that this commandment is actually sandwiched between the two chapters of Leviticus that deal with improper sexual relations, including homosexuality. I feel it necessary to bring this up during uh, Pride Month. Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus, Leviticus 20.13 both speak against homosexuality. The world tries to tell us we should love. We should stop condemning these behaviors and instead seek to learn how to love our neighbor. You can remind them that the love they speak of is found in the same book that opposes homosexuality. This passage was previously alluded to by Jesus in Matthew 5 and actually speaks to the kind of almost the scope. See, right there in, in Leviticus, it almost just means your kin, right? Those of, around you, the people of your kind, you shall love them. Jesus opens it up, though, in Matthew 5, 43 through 48 and says, no, I'm going to open it up to everyone, including your enemies. So it takes it from the smaller circle loving those of your kind or your kin instead to a broadening to everyone, including your enemies. And a parallel passage in Luke 10 is actually the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we see who our neighbor is here. We can put that piece of the puzzle together pretty easily. Our neighbor is anyone who we come in contact with. Our neighbor is whoever's around us at the time. And yet one of the keys that really opens up Matthew 22 for me and Lord willing tonight for you is found in the phrase, the second is like it. It's just such an interesting, how is it like it? Why did Jesus bring this second command here? And so, being someone who went to a couple seminary classes, I went to the Greek. What, is, what does this mean, the second? Well, it just means the second in a series. It's not of greater importance. It's not of lesser importance. I will have three points tonight. All three points are just three points. One, two, three. There's no significance. I don't say one before the other. They're just there. Okay, so it's not the second. That doesn't help us too much. But how about like it? Well, interesting, like it means a necessary counterpart. It's just as great. You can't have one without the other. So then this almost makes the statement here by Jesus and Matthew a compound singular command more than a separate two commands. And I'll show you that tonight. Obviously the it, the second is like it, 
is a referral to the previous command, and thus the similarities of the two commands help us to understand the importance of this second command. It is like the first command. Being that Jesus stated that these two commands here sum up all the law and the prophets. All 39 books of the Old Testament are summed up. And indeed, when we look at the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, we see the first four have to do with loving God. The second six have to do with loving man. But altogether, you're going to see they're all about loving God. It would help us then if the whole Old Testament can be summed up, all the law and prophets can be summed up in these two statements, then we better figure out how the second command is like the first command. Tonight I intend to show you this in three ways. So first, the second command is like the first command in its object. Second, the second command is like the first command in its source. And third, the second command is like the first command in its comprehensiveness. So let's go to it, its object. Back to Matthew. What we see here is it says what? The object of the first command is you shall love who? The Lord, your God. You shall love the Lord, your God. So the object of the first command is God. What is the second one? Well, you shall love your neighbor. So the object of the second command is going to be your neighbor. But wait, how is it like the first command? For that, we would have to go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Familiar passage with everyone. It says, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Man, or I'm sorry, male and female, he created them. And there it is. The second is going to be like the first because even though the object is your neighbor, your object is actually the image of God. Commonly referred to as the Imago Dei, this is the fundamental difference that sets us apart from the rest of creation. This concept becomes the basis in understanding ourselves and our interacting with each other. Our humanity is what connects us. Our humanity and being made in the image of God is what helps us understand who we are. 1 Corinthians 4.7 even shows us that we didn't even get our own humanity. We didn't even do something for our own humanity. We can't even brag in our own humanity because 1 Corinthians 4.7 says, what do you have that you have not been given? And if you've been given it, why do you boast as if you hadn't been given it? We can't even brag to the animals that we're humans and better because God gave us our humanity. We did nothing to deserve it. This is a revolutionary way of looking at humans because the world is used to sorting humans by hierarchy, aren't they? Traditionally, we've seen man is higher than woman. Adults are higher than children. Free are higher than slave. One ethnicity over another, depending on what point of history you're in and where you are. But here, what we see is that we are all equally as human, and thus there is no rational basis for trying to sort humans into any type of hierarchy. Why? Because to say that you're somehow more human than someone is to say that somehow you have more Imago Dei. To say somehow God gave you more of his likeness than other people. And he didn't. And so at the base of it, we are all human. Our humanity is equal. And this goes doubly in the church. Turn to Colossians 3. You're going to hold your finger in this because we're going to come back to Colossians 3. There's quite a bit here. But we'll start in, in 9. Actually, we'll start in 8. It says, but now you must put, a, uh, put them all away, anger, 
wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk for your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The image that we have has been tarnished by sin, and yet Christ is renewing that image within us. And so as Christians, not only are we equal in our humanity, we are equal in our Christianity. No one is more loved by God than somebody else. In, when we are talking about Christians, when we are talking about the elect. No one's been made more perfect than others. Paul shows how our identity is the renewing of the Imago Dei through Christ and thus becomes our preeminent identity. That's why then he goes on to say in verse 11, here there is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying your preeminent identity is no longer something that you have on the outside, but it is your humanity and then your Christianity. And when we deal with people in the church, our identity, the thing that we have preeminent overall when we deal with other people is our humanity and our Christianity. We don't come in with other identities saying, I represent this group. No. We are Christians. We are all under Christ. Now, does that mean that we lose who we are? No, I still stay male. I still stay white. I still, depending on what DNA test you'd have, is either French or English. But that's not the primary, the primary identity that I talk to other people. I see them as Christians first. I see them as humans, and that's how we're going to deal with each other. There's no more importance then, because we're all under Christ. We're all Christian in that way. That hasn't been what's happened over time in the church. There was a time where you could actually pay for your seat. Unlike today, where everybody likes to sit in the back, back then, people wanted to sit in the front, so that they could show their prominence, so they could show how much money they had. And so you would actually pay for your, your seat. I went to one of these churches and they have locks, right? You have locks and you're given the key if you pay enough or if you're prominent enough. If you were a slave, you had to sit up in the balcony. So your seating arrangement was a hierarchy of who you were in society. And that's exactly the opposite of what Paul wanted. Everyone should sit together. We should all be unified in Christ. That's what he's getting at. Now contrast this with evolution, right? Evolution, what you'll see is that they come up with a natural hierarchy. There has to be because they are evolving. You start off with whatever they think they start off with, and they go up through organisms. Now, on a macro level, everyone is okay with this. Everyone's okay saying that we're better than Neanderthals. Everyone's better thinking that we're better than Cro-Magnon man or caveman, whatever you want. But interestingly, they don't stay consistent to their worldview. They borrow from ours. Because when you come to a more micro level, and you try to say, well, Who's more evolved in today's society? Oh, they don't like that. They don't stay consistent to their own worldview. In fact, when they tried to stay consistent in the 1800s and you had a German anatomy professor come and, and take skulls and look at people and try to come up with a hierarchy of what seems to be more evolved and it just so happened to be that the race that he was was the most evolved one, of course. And so he came up with this determined that the white race was superior. This was partially what was used to, to justify slavery. We're taming the savages. And we'll tell them about Jesus. This is also what was used to justify the Holocaust. In fact, they stayed so inconsistent with their worldview that their philosophy they had, which was called modern thought, 
was thrown away because of the Holocaust, and now we live in a postmodern world because they didn't like the outplay of their own philosophy. They have to borrow from ours. And so they stay inconsistent today. You see, we have to learn to see people as equal human and thus equally deserving of human dignity, not because of some man-made concept, rather because of who God is. And that's what I want you to get here. Our view of each individual is a reflection of our view of God. This is the basis of our human ethics. How we treat others is reflecting our view of God. In order to complete the first commandment, you must also fulfill the second commandment because in order for us to love God the way he wants us to, we must love his image. Go to James. Hold your place in Colossians. Go to James 3. James is going to state it right up front, which is why I love James. He pulls no punches. He just says, here it is. Deal with it. He's talking about the tongue. And he's showing you how terrible the tongue can be, how it can light a whole forest on fire, how it can't be tamed. It's a restless evil, a deadly poison. And then in verse 9, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. There's the first commandment. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There's the breaking of the second. And what does he say about that? From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, for, uh, pour forth from the same, both opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's saying you can't do it. It's impossible. That's the point here. We cannot be a people that similarly worship God and, yes, and yet mistreat man because we mistreat man is to mistreat the image of God. And that's why the analogy that a spring cannot produce fresh water and bitter water shows the impossibility of properly worshiping God while mistreating man. Plainly put, you cannot claim to love God if you do not have a love for man. Paul continues this idea. Go back to Colossians 3. When we go back to Colossians 3, what we see is after Paul has set up everything in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he then goes on in verse 12 to say this, put on then as what? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he's appealing to their what? He's appealing to the Christianity, their, their status of being elect. As chosen ones, this is what you're supposed to do. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And he goes on, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, putting on love, verse 14, which binds everything. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Be thankful. He goes on. Go to, go to verse 18. Wives, this is how you're supposed to treat your husbands, based upon the fact that you are Christians. He appeals to the Imago Dei and then appeals to wives in verse 18. Then he appeals to husbands in verse 19. Then he appeals to children in verse 20. Then he appeals to fathers in verse 21. Then he appeals to slaves in verse 22 and appeals to masters in chapter 4, verse 1. My point, the ethical basis for how we conduct ourselves in the church is the Imago Dei. He establishes the Imago Dei. He appeals to their Christianity and says, because of that, this is how you should act. You cannot say that you have a great relationship with God or that you are worshiping God correctly if you are consistently hurting or ignoring those who bear his image. In fact, your worship is worthless to God. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 10. It says here, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Again, Isaiah 1, now verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come 
to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. That's pretty strong. I hate your worship. I hate your worship. I hate your sacrifices. I hate your festivals. I hate everything that you're doing. I hate your incense before me. When you spread out your hands in worship, how many of us do that when we sing? He says, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So what weren't they doing? Well, they weren't seeking to correct oppression. They were oppressing. They weren't seeking justice. They had injustice. They mistreated other people, and their worship stunk before God. You want to know how God thinks about your worship? If you can't treat other people properly, it stinks before him. You want to talk about a life that is worthless? You think you're worshiping God and mistreating his people? God says it's worthless. It stinks. It makes me upset. I hate it. And so we see the first thing is that the object is similar. Second is its source. You see, the source of the first commandment is God, since we cannot love God unless he loves us first. You see, there's a problem when God tells us to love. Romans 3 makes that very apparent to us. We have no love within ourselves. As humans, we hate. We hate God. We hate him pretty hard with everything that we have. We are rebellious towards God. And so if the source of the first command has to be God, the source of the second command also has to be God. Because we cannot love God's image if we don't know how to love God. So just as we saw that we cannot love God if we do not learn to love those who bear his image, the danger we can also run into is trying to love others apart from the source of love. We cannot truly love others apart from a love from God and for God. God is both going to be the definitional source. He defines what love is, and he's going to be our motivational source. He's the thing that keeps us going. Go to 1 John 4. God is the definition of love. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is the definition of love. It is utterly impossible for God to do something unloving. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about when somebody says, well, that's not very loving that God throws people to hell? You go, well, no, it is. God is perfect love. Everything he does is loving. He has perfect love for that. God defines love. All of his actions are perfectly loving. And because we are rebellious towards God, and we are separated from God because of that, our affections for others are apart from the source of love, and thus are not truly loving. Now, we may have actions and feelings that appear to be loving and probably do fit some type of surface definition of love. But if love, if the love doesn't stem from God as its source and out of a love for God, 
the action doesn't meet the standard of love that God commands. Our affections are going to be what? Man-centered. They're going to be earthly. They're going to be spiritually dead and ultimately leading others closer to hell. Now, that's a big statement, so I'm going to have to prove it. Matthew 12. This is kind of a new way that some people may have be seeing love because you see loving things done in the world all the time from people who don't seem to be Christians. And indeed, they do fit some surface definition of love. But when we go to Matthew 12, verse 30, we, we drop in the context of Jesus had just thrown a demon out of somebody, and the religious leaders basically said, well, he can do that because he's from Satan. And then Jesus um, addresses that and basically says, how can the kingdom be divided? And then verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So this is what we like to call the myth of neutrality. There is no neutrality. There is no outside definition of love that everyone can meet. You are either with God or you are against him. You are either with the definition of love or you're against him. Your actions are either going to gather people to God or they're going to scatter them. And so while you might meet some surface definition of love, if your actions aren't from God and towards God, your actions are scattering Imagine how worthless living your life in a manner that was in service to man, only to find out you were actually scattering them away from God and toward hell. As Pastor Scott likes to say, packing their bags for hell. See, we can't be true lovers of others while hating God. And yet our hearts are depraved haters of God that are dead in their sins. In fact, the hopelessness in our lives is such that even our good works apart from God, are seen as soiled undergarments. Isaiah 64, 6 says that. It's a very graphic term that he uses, a sickening term. Soiled undergarments before God. They're repulsive. So we have no hope in being able to love others if we have no hope in ever being able to love God. But the words that we love so much, but God... The gospel becomes paramount because we cannot love God until he first loves us. But God loves us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to 1 John 4 and you see this scene brilliantly. In verse 19, it says very, very simply, if any, um, we love because he first loved us. We are incapable of true love until God shows his love towards us and redeems us and gives us a new spirit. And so your source has to become God. Your source has to be, from, has to be the gospel. And after we're connected to this generator of love, we must then love others according to the definition of love that God gives. God is the definition of love. Anything outside that definition is not love because it's outside of God. But the world likes to make things up. The world likes to try and add definitions to this. Even though the Bible describes how we are to treat others, the world likes to add to it. And anything that diverges from the standard, no matter how right it may feel... Right? How many times do we hear that in the world today? But I feel like it's, it's love. I feel like it's right. I feel like it's the thing I should be doing. But it's not love if it's not from God's word. Right? You may feel that, that you don't want to discipline your children, but I'm telling you, failing to discipline your children in a loving way, in a God-honoring way, is not loving your children. Failing to lead your wife or failing to submit to your husband in a loving way, is failing to love them. Letting your children decide what gender they are going to be is failing to love them. Letting them take drugs or go through surgeries that are radical and have many side effects because you think that's, you feel like that's the best thing. 
Maybe God made a mistake. It's failing to love them. Not practicing church discipline is failing to love the church. The world cannot define love for us. They're devoid of it. They actually hate the source of love. And so they hate love. So not only is God the definitional source, he is our motivational source. 2 Corinthians 5. I know I'm having you go to a lot of scripture, but I don't know that that's wrong. 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 14. would hope if I went to 2 Corinthians and not 1st. <laughs> Although that's a good scripture too. Paul says here, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might not, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are continually compelled and controlled by the love of Christ to not live for ourselves, but instead to live for Christ and thus to love others. He is our motivation. Because this motivation is rooted in God, it is unwavering and it will never fail. Because we are motivated to love God, then we are motivated to love others because they are created in his image. The best motivation for a long-lasting marriage is not your love for each other, but rather your love for God that is then manifested towards each other because your spouse will fail you. I have failed my wife to be a good husband many times. Your emotions will fail you. There are going to be many times you don't feel like being married. Really, every human aspect of the marriage can fail you, but the love of Christ will never fail, and thus the basis for our love for each other is Christ, because he never fails. The best motivation for a lifetime of successful ministry is a love for Christ. Prestige fades. Pride leads to a fall, but ministering where God has you because of his love for you will keep you content and preserving It is my conviction that when we get to heaven, we're going to see a lot of people who were faithful ministers of Christ who we've never heard of. And they will be the ones elevated because the economics of heaven are not like the economics of earth. Those things that we find important on earth and those things that we give prestige to and honor to and praise to are not the things that God does. God knows what gifts he's given you. Use them faithfully and let him elevate you in his way. Prestige won't last. If you go after it, you're going to go after the wrong thing and you will fail in ministry. God's people also can be difficult to work with. As Pastor Scott says, sometimes the sheep bite back. They can be difficult to work with. They can be ungrateful. But your motivation is Christ's love. And so he keeps you going. When you get tired of doing this, when you don't want to talk anymore, when you don't want to encourage anymore, when you don't want to go through it yet again. It's the same thing with parenting. When again you have to explain this, when they're acting up again, when they have a bad attitude again, when they're not listening again, and you've been doing this for years and years and years. Just think about how patient God's been with you. And let him be your motivation to continue on. And not some, well, my kid is great now. He's going to be whatever. Our motivation is God. Therefore, when we love someone, we must love them using the right motivation and the right definition. Today, a decidedly different type of source of love has arisen and even is prominent in evangelical community. It creates a false love that scatters This is known as critical theory. Pastor Jason touched on this, and I can't tell you how much I agree with him. If you want a good primer on critical theory and and how it's dividing the church, Vody Bauckham just came out with a book called Fault Lines, F-A-L-F-A-U-L-T-L-I-N-E-S. 
It's too, this subject is too expansive for me to speak about right now, but at its roots, it shows a false and a hell-bound love. The definitional source of love is described in critical theory is not found in God, but rather a postmodern neo-Marxist definition. The motivational source of love found in critical theory is guilt. And it's a guilt that you can't get rid of. And a type of guilt that is based upon things that are unchangeable to your features that you possess. And thus, there is no redemption in it. This is why we choose to reject the tenets of critical theory in its many forms. There's no useful tool about it. It is a doctrine of demons. As James 3.15 would say, it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Because it teaches you to try and love somebody outside of the definition of Christ and outside of the source of Christ. The worthlessness of loving others apart from a source is best seen in Matthew 7.22. Matthew 7.22, when people come before God and they say all these great things... He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Right? That makes your life better. If you had a demon in you and now you don't have a demon in you, that's good. We did many mighty works in your name. And he declares, I never knew you. Your source was never me. Your motivation was never me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The deeds are good. Many people are helped. Lives were changed, but it didn't matter. They never were known by God. And thus, their deeds were seen as lawless, and they had a worthless life that ends them in hell. The last way, it's like that the first commandment, I'm sorry, that the second commandment is like the first commandment, is it's in its comprehensiveness. The comprehensiveness of the first command is all of everything that we have. Right? We talked about that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Everything. That was what it was supposed to say. Everything of everything. The same comprehensiveness is seen in the second command to love our neighbor as you would yourself. Right? You're loving your neighbor in the same way you would love yourself. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean that is prominent today. People today like to twist this command and somehow a call to learn how to love yourself. It says, well, you love others like you love yourself. So first you have to learn how to love yourself, and then you can learn to love others. No, right? We learned what the object is. In both things, the object is not you. You love God, and you love others who are image bearers of God, thus God again. You are nowhere in that. It's the exact opposite. The object is God. This also does not mean that we love people in the exact same way we love ourselves, right? I love peanut butter M&Ms. If I were to offer peanut butter M&Ms to a person who I know is allergic to peanut butter and it could kill them, that's not loving. And I can't sit there and go, but I like them, so they should like it. That's a loving thing, right? Well, no. You knew that they were allergic to it. You knew that could injure them. Why would you give them something that would injure them? You can't just say, well, I would like it, so they have to like it. No, that's not what the command's saying. The call here is a generalized call to love others in the same manner as yourself, because the rational person takes care of themselves and meets their needs and usually tries to seek what is best for them. In fact, we have medical diagnoses for people who have failure to thrive. Right? We have, we have if somebody is trying to injure themselves commonly, we will put them under a Baker Act. Obviously, they're not thinking with their right mind because they're trying to hurt themselves. Even the world sees that. We try to seek what is best for ourselves. We usually describe this as human flourishing. We seek the best things for others that helps them lead a successful life that is pleasing to God, and that's what it means. We're going to seek the best things from people that will help them lead a life that is pleasing to God. Now, too many times we see love as simply a physical action or a kind word. But in the same way that we are to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, we're to love others with our whole self. 
and meet their needs of their whole self. And then we need to, so we need to be looking out for their spiritual health, their mental health, their emotional health, as well as their physical health. When you think about their spiritual health, are you asking about and sharing resources that would stimulate them to love God more? How are you doing spiritually? What are you reading? Have you read any good books? Have you listened to any good sermons? I've listened to these. I want you to see them. Let me share them. Mental health. Are we discussing and providing resources that help people learn to critically think through issues? To stimulate them mentally? Are we providing them with an environment where they can break from their everyday tasks and stress and spend time reflecting on their lives and focusing on God? So many times our mental um, energy is used up just trying to solve the problems of the day that we never get time to sit and think about who God is. Are we talking to people to make sure they have that time? Are we doing things to help them with that time? Give them the afternoon off. I'll watch the kids. Or I'll do this for you. I'll mow your lawn, whatever. So you can take a break and go think. Take a mental break. Emotional health. Do we consider how we affect or how a circumstance affects someone's emotions? Do we create an environment where, like David, read in the Psalms how David is honest before God. If you can't see the emotion in that, I don't know what to tell you. We can express deep, raw emotions and then deal with them biblically. Do you have an environment where somebody can come to you and express deep, raw emotions? And then you can listen to them, understand them, and then help them deal with them biblically, just like David does. The key to unlocking what loving others of yourself becomes simple. As Christians... We understand that life is most joyful and fulfilling and causes us to flourish the most when life is lived in close relationship with God. And if we know that for ourselves, then that's what we're going to do for others. One of my wife's favorite verses, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Loving others as yourselves becomes us using our whole self to love their whole self in a way that helps them have a joyful and fulfilling life, flourishing in a close relationship with God. And so there again, the object and the source are God. Help them see Christ more clearly. Help remove obstacles that may eclipse the sun, S-O-N. I take that from Rick Holland's book. And help them behold the glory of God. One of the things we find in education that is sad is some of the kids that come in public schools, the reason they do poorly in school is because they're hungry. They They aren't fed at home for whatever reason. And so all they can think about is their hunger throughout the day because the only lunch that they'll get is the lunch that they get at school. In fact, I remember when I was an athletic trainer and um, for the Pinellas County School System and the coach was telling me that some of his football players, like he's not allowed to give them food per se and pay for things, but he is. He just happened to leave bread and peanut butter out in his office where anywhere could get it. Anyone could get it because he knew that some of his players Their last meal would be Friday at lunch until Monday at lunch. And so they couldn't think. Their performance became lower. So they started providing more meals, and they found that these kids, when they weren't hungry, could actually function. Well, it can be the same way. When we go to other places and we want to dig wells or we want to give them food, it has to be for the for the purpose of giving them the gospel. Sometimes we have to remove barriers like hunger so that they can think And it is not that we have to go into a place and earn the right to give them the gospel. We don't earn the right to tell them what the king of kings has them to say. God has that right because he's over all the earth. But if we want people to listen more effectively, we can remove that barrier, show love to them, and give them the gospel. We shouldn't be people who just dig wells and give food and then leave. Right? Now they've gained the whole world, and what have they done? Lost their soul. 
So it's both. I told you tonight that I wanted to show you how to keep from leading a worthless life. Let me describe some worthless lives. A worthless life can look like someone who tries to worship God while ignoring his image bearers, only to find out that what you did to those people, you did to God. We were hungry. We were in prison. We were naked. And they say, when, when did that happen, God? What you did to the least of these, you did to me. Another worthless life looks like someone who loved people without showing them the source of love through the gospel and thus helped pack their bags for hell. You gave them the world, and they lost their soul. A worthless life looks like someone whose love points people away from Christ and not towards him. They scatter and not gather. So what does your love look like? What does your love for other people look like? If we are to live a life pleasing to God and one that will mean something in this life and the next, learn to love God with everything that you have. Everything of everything that you have. And learn to love his image bearers around you with the right object, the right source, and comprehensively. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tonight. Lord, may we learn not to have worthless ventures. May we seek to have every interaction something that is worthwhile. May we seek to show people love in the way that we treat them. May our love be true to who you are. May our love point to you. May our love be motivated by you. Put that love within us, God. You're the only one that can. We don't have it in ourselves. I pray that we will do everything for your name and your honor and your glory. In your son's name, amen.